Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, this morning, uh, we continue our journey through our six-week sermon series called Credo. Uh, We have the graphic for this sermon series up here on the screen. I'll begin by reminding us that Credo is a Latin word that simply means, I believe. And in this sermon series, uh, we are using the Apostles' Creed, uh, one of the great creeds of the church, to explore our essential, core, non-negotiable beliefs about God and the Christian faith. And what I want to say up front in this message is one of those essential, core, non-negotiable beliefs that we hold is that God is Trinity. God is Trinity. Um, As Christians, we are convinced in the depth of who we are that there is only one God, that God is one, and yet at the same time, God enjoys oneness as a community of persons. That from all eternity, God exists as a community of persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That these three persons all make up the one Godhead. They're distinct. They're not the same. They're co-equal. They're co-eternal. Are you with me so far? This is pretty simple stuff, isn't it? It's always risky to begin a sermon by talking about the Trinity. In fact, that's one of the things they tell you in seminary. Probably don't begin your sermon by talking about the Trinity. And so let me just share, if this confuses us a little bit, if this boggles our minds, that's okay. We are in good company. Actually, the story is told that St. Augustine, uh, the early church father, in fact, the oldest city in America, St. Augustine, is named after him. I've always found it interesting that we call the theologian St. Augustine and we call the city St. Augustine, so I've never quite understood that one. But the story is told that St. Augustine, he had just finished his famous theological treatise called On the Trinity. And so he put the manuscript away in his desk and he had been spending so much time writing that he decided to stretch his legs, go for a walk, and so he began to walk along the shore of the Mediterranean Sea on the coast of North Africa, where he lived. Sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? Well, as he was walking along, he noticed that there was this little boy, and this little boy had a bucket, and he was going into the sea, and he was filling the bucket with water, and then he was running back to the beach, and he was pouring the water into a hole in the sand. And he just continued to do this, had the bucket, filled the bucket with water from the sea, pour the seawater into a hole in the sand. And so Augustine approached the little guy, and he asked him what he was up to. And with all seriousness, the child said, I am taking the sea from over there, and I'm putting it right here in this hole. And so Augustine chuckled, like many of you are doing, and he kind of chided the boy, and he said, my dear lad, or maybe he didn't say lad, he probably said, my dear son, what an impossible thing to do. Uh, The sea is way too vast, and your hole is way too small. And then as he continued to walk along, he suddenly felt humbled, and he realized that in his efforts to write about the Trinity, as he had just done, he was much like that little boy, that the subject was way too vast, and his mind was way too small. As human beings, we will never fully comprehend God. We will never fully comprehend God. All we can do is understand God 
based on how God has revealed himself to us. We talked about this two weeks ago in the inaugural message for the sermon series, that we don't discover anything about God on our own. We only know about God by, by way of revelation, how God has revealed himself to us. Well, when God revealed himself to us in Jesus, and Jesus is the primary, the ultimate revelation of God, because as Paul would say in Colossians 1.19, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, when God revealed himself to us in Jesus, God showed himself to be Trinity. That Jesus spoke about the Father on numerous occasions. He spoke about himself as the Son, and he also referred to the Holy Spirit. That the Trinity is not a math problem to be solved. The Trinity is who God is. And the reason I share all this up front, it's not to confuse us, it's not to get us in the weeds. The reason I share all this is that so far in the sermon series, we have used the Apostles' Creed to better understand the first two persons of the Trinity, the Godhead, uh, the Father and the Son. And so today, this morning, in this message, we're going to use the Apostles' Creed to better understand the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But before we get into our conversation about the Holy Spirit, what I want to do first is I want to recite together the articles of the Apostles' Creed that we've looked at so far. They're up here on the screen. Let's read these together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Hold on. You're getting ahead of me. Well, having examined both of these articles, the article about the Father, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and the article about the Son, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, we now come to the article about the Holy Spirit. All right, let's do this. One, two, three, go. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it. Only six words. Now, the article about God the Father has 12 words. The article about Jesus the Son that we looked at last week, that has a whopping 65 words. But this article about the Holy Spirit only has six words, which is somewhere between 5 and 6% of the entire Apostles' Creed. To put it simply, less than 6% of the Apostles' Creed is devoted to the Holy Spirit, whom, as we said earlier, we believe to be co-equal and co-eternal with the other two persons of the Godhead, the Trinity. Do we have any middle children here today? Just me? Okay, maybe a few people are raising their hand. Okay, some of you are raising your hand. So I'm a middle child, and as a quintessential middle child who always felt as if my siblings, my brother and my sister, got more attention from our parents than I did, I can't help but ask the question, what gives? How is this fair? But what I want us to recognize is this. The Holy Spirit is okay with this. The Holy Spirit is okay with receiving less attention than the other two persons of the Trinity, especially Jesus, because the Holy Spirit, above all else, wants to draw attention to Jesus. Um, back in the mid-1980s, uh, there was a book that was published called The Holy Spirit, Shy Member of the Trinity. Isn't that a great name for a book? The Holy Spirit, 
shy member of the Trinity. Uh, the theologians who wrote this book, uh, their names are Dale Bruner and William Hordern. Well, in this book, uh, these authors, these theologians, taking their cue from Scripture, they say that the Holy Spirit is shy. Now, don't misunderstand what they mean, because when we hear that word shy, what do we think of? Timid, afraid, you don't really have much confidence. That's not what they're talking about. They mean shy in the sense of deference, not wanting the spotlight, that the Holy Spirit wants to defer to Jesus. The Holy Spirit wants to defer the attention to Jesus. This is how these theologians put it in that book. This quote, uh, this excerpt is up here on the screen. It has often been said that the Holy Spirit is the great neglected person of the Godhead. People talk about this all the time. They say, oh, we don't, we don't really talk about the Holy Spirit very much. We always talk about Jesus or the Father. So it's often been said that the Holy Spirit is the great neglected person of the Godhead, but the Holy Spirit's desire and work is that we be overcome again, thrilled again, excited and gripped again by the wonder, the majesty, the relevance of Jesus. Uh, John Orberg, who's a pastor out in California, he shares that one time he decided to take his daughter Laura to go see the movie Snow White. Uh, Laura's a grown woman now. Uh, she has a family of her own. But at the time, she was only two years old. Now, in hindsight, Orberg says it probably was not the best decision because Snow White is a pretty scary movie when you're two years old. Actually, in truth, a lot of the early Disney movies are scary when you're two years old. Amen? And maybe they're scary to a degree as an adult, too. And so, when the Wicked Witch showed up, Laura got scared. She started crying. And then when Snow White ate the poison apple, spoiler alert, I'm sorry if you haven't seen it, but when Snow White ate the poison apple, she started crying even more. And then Orberg says, he started crying. He started crying when they got to the part of the movie when Snow White sings that song, Someday My Prince Will Come. I'm not going to sing that for you today. Someday my prince will come. As he sat there in the movie theater, Orberg thought to himself, here I am with my daughter, and the reality is one day she's going to grow up, and she's probably going to get married. Her prince is going to come, so to speak, and she's not going to be my little girl forever. It was this really strange feeling. And then as he thought about all this, he suddenly started thinking about the seven dwarfs. Remember the seven dwarves? The seven dwarves are these guys who risk everything for Snow White. They shelter her. They protect her. They feed her. And then what happens when the prince shows up? They get the shaft, don't they? Amen? And yet the funny thing is, the seven dwarves are okay with this. The prince gets the bride, Snow White, and all they do is rejoice. They're not upset about this. Now granted, folks, this is not a perfect analogy. All analogies break down when it comes to talking about God. But in a similar sense, as Orberg says, that's what the Holy Spirit does within the Godhead. The Holy Spirit rejoices. The Holy Spirit takes pleasure when you and I as human beings come to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit wants to bring us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit works to bring us to Jesus. And because the Holy Spirit works to bring us to Jesus, there is never a moment or a time in which the Holy Spirit is not active in our lives. Now, some people assume that the Holy Spirit only becomes present in our lives 
once we become Christians, Christ followers, and certainly the Holy Spirit is active in us in a new sense at that point, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but even before we become Christian, the Holy Spirit is still there. The Holy Spirit is still moving in our lives. We as United Methodists have a name for this kind of activity. We call it prevenient grace. Um, prevenient is a Latin word. Just like credo is a Latin word. Prevenient is a Latin word that basically means to come before, to proceed, to go ahead. In other words, God's grace through the Holy Spirit goes ahead of us. God's grace precedes us. God's grace is present in our lives from the very start. This is why United Methodists insist on baptizing babies, because we believe that God's grace is already working in that baby's life, that God through the Holy Spirit, God is nudging us, moving us, encouraging us to come into a relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. When I think of prevenient grace, I think of my parents, Doug and Judy, who actually, if my mom were still alive, they would be celebrating today their wedding anniversary. Uh, they were married June 5th, 1977. Well, for the longest time after they were married, uh, my parents hardly ever went to church. Uh, they would go occasionally, Christmas, Easter, times like that, but beyond that, not very much. But then one day, when I was about seven years old, my mom got the sense that she wanted more for our family. And so she came up to my dad, who was less of a churchgoer than she was, and she said, Doug, I really would like to take the kids to church on Sunday morning, and I was hoping that you would drive us. Now, the reason she asked him to drive is that my mom never got around to getting her driver's license her entire life. And so when I was a kid, before myself and my siblings, before we learned how to drive, we were very dependent on my dad to get us anywhere. And much to my mom's surprise, this is what my dad said. Okay, I can do that but why can't I come too? That was not the answer that she was expecting. You see, God was moving through the Holy Spirit in my mom's life, giving my mom that desire to come to church with our kids on Sunday morning, but God through the Holy Spirit was also moving in my dad's life. Whenever we get that nudge and the depth of who we are to pursue God, to follow Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit at work. And in addition to giving us this nudge to pursue God and follow Jesus, also what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit reveals to us that, yes, we are God's beloved children. Uh, yes, we matter to God. Yes, we are made in the image of God. But we are also sinners. We are imperfect, broken people in desperate need of Jesus Christ to save and redeem us. Check out how Jesus puts it. In John's Gospel, uh, this is from John chapter 16, verse 8. Jesus is speaking these words to the disciples in the upper room just before he was crucified. Jesus says, and when he, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin. What does it mean to be convicted? In a literal sense, it means to be convinced. The Holy Spirit convinces us that yes, we are sinners, but the Holy Spirit also compels us to repent of that sin, to turn from that sin, and to step into the light of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The great 20th century preacher, Fred Craddock, um, who for years um, taught preaching 
and New Testament classes at Candler School of Theology, which is a part of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, Craddock says that when he was growing up uh, on a farm in rural Tennessee, uh, they didn't have TV, they didn't have radio, and so he and his siblings played outside a lot. You remember playing outside when you were a kid? And one of the games that they would play was hide-and-go-seek. Now, the problem was, Craddock said, his sister always cheated when she was at. Now, she would start out pretty innocently. She would close her eyes, and she would say, one, two, three, four, five, and then she would skip a whole bunch of numbers, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 100. Ready or not, here I come. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Well, it didn't matter that his sister cheated because one time he found the perfect hiding spot right underneath the steps of his parents' front porch. He was small enough to fit down there. And so his sister comes looking for him, and she goes inside the house, she can't find him. She goes in the barn, she can't find him. She goes in the backyard, she can't find him. She goes in the front yard, she can't find him. And Craddock almost gave himself away, just snickering to himself, she'll never find me here. She'll never find me here. And he thought, wait a minute. She'll never find me here. That's no fun. And so he purposely stuck out his foot. And she said, uh-oh, I see you. You're it. Oh, shucks, he said. You found me. But Craddock admitted, deep down, that's what I wanted the whole time. I wanted to be found. The Holy Spirit gives us that desire, that yearning, that longing to be found by the great finder, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then, once you and I give our hearts and our lives over to Jesus, we become Christians, Christ followers. Um, to use an expression, we become born again, as it says in John chapter 3. Well, the Holy Spirit who was already there, the Holy Spirit who was already at work through providing grace, the Holy Spirit becomes alive in us and active in us in a new way. And the Holy Spirit begins this process that the church calls sanctification. Can you say this with me? Sanctification. Sanctification is this fancy theological term, but what that means is that the Holy Spirit, like a gardener, those of you who like to garden, think about this, you know, you begin to uproot what's bad. The Holy Spirit begins to uproot what's bad in us, what's ugly about us, what's broken about us, our hostility toward others, our selfishness, our pride, our bitterness, our desire to seek vengeance on those who hurt us. The Holy Spirit starts to uproot all of this stuff and begins to mold us and shape us, and recreate us, and reconform us into the image of Jesus our Savior. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that when the Holy Spirit does this sanctifying work, we produce what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? This is what Paul writes in Galatians 5, verse 22, and verse 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Now, to be clear, none of us can produce this fruit on our own. Does Paul call these things the fruit of human effort? Does he call this the fruit of trying really hard? The fruit of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps? No, he calls this the fruit of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the one who produces these things in our lives. Um, Amanda, my wife, and myself, um, we sometimes watch on TV uh, the show Fixer Upper. Anybody ever seen Fixer Upper before? 
It's probably the most famous home improvement show on television right now. So on that show, the hosts, Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, they live in Waco, Texas. Uh, what they do is they go into these houses, these houses that are old, they've been neglected, they're beat up, they have potential, but they really haven't gotten a lot of attention over the years. And so they begin this process with their team of gutting these houses and demolishing them and renovating them. And by the end of the episode, the house is completely transformed from what it was before. Well, here's a spiritual truth I want us to cling to this morning. We are all fixer-uppers. We are all fixer-uppers. And if you're not convinced that you're a fixer-upper, talk to your spouse if you're married. Your spouse will tell you how much of a fixer-upper you actually are. Or if you're not married, talk to somebody who knows you really well. Maybe a sibling, maybe a neighbor, maybe a cousin, I don't know. But they will tell you how much of a fixer-upper you actually are. And God, through the Holy Spirit, God is the one who fixes us up. This is how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, Mere Christianity, as he talks about the sanctification process. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs need to doing, and so you are not surprised, but presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he, God, is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in that palace himself. There is a palace that God through the Holy Spirit is building in each and every one of us as human beings. Now, so far in this sermon, we have talked a heck of a lot about the Spirit's work in our individual lives, and in our personal lives, how the Holy Spirit is always there through revealing grace, how the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, compels us to receive salvation in Jesus, how the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, renews us. But the truth is, the Holy Spirit isn't just at work in our individual lives, in our personal lives, the Holy Spirit is also present and at work in our collective lives, in our corporate lives. In other words, the Holy Spirit is at work in the church. And the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers the church, enables the church to be about the ministry of Jesus in this world. Earlier in this sermon, we read from John chapter 16. We'll listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 14, just two chapters earlier. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because I am going to be with the Father. Now hold on a second. That's really bizarre, isn't it? On the surface, that sounds pretty odd. How is it possible, the broken, everyday, ordinary people that we are, how is it possible for us to do greater works than Jesus? I mean, come on. None of us have walked on water. None of us have restored sight to the blind, have we? None of us have done the miracles or exercised the demons that Jesus did. How is it possible for us to do greater works than the Son of God? Here's what I think Jesus meant. Jesus knew that when he was with us on earth, those 33 years, he was in a body, just like you and I have bodies. And because of that, he couldn't be everywhere all at once. He couldn't be more than one place at one time. But Jesus knew that after the resurrection, that he would ascend back to the Father, 
and that the Holy Spirit would descend upon his followers. Remember Jesus said, it is better that I go back to the Father so that the Spirit can come. So the Holy Spirit descends upon his followers and empowers us collectively to be about the work of Jesus in this world. And so think about all the work that the church has accomplished over the past 2,000 years collectively. Think about all the good that we've been able to do. Sometimes the church gets a bad rap, and there are good reasons sometimes for that because we're not perfect, but think about all the good that we've done over the past 2,000 years. Think about all the hospitals that have been built, all the schools that have been built, all the children's homes that have been built, all the missionaries that have been sent out, all the relief work that's been done. All of this is possible because the Holy Spirit is not just at work in our individual lives, but in our collective lives. The Apostle Paul, in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, he speaks about this concept of spiritual gifts. What are spiritual gifts? Spiritual gifts are these special abilities given to us by God through the Holy Spirit. Some of us, Paul says, have the gift of prophecy, administration, discernment, leadership. But what happens when we take our spiritual gifts and we use them in conjunction with other people's spiritual gifts? As Paul would say, the whole body of Jesus is built up and the ministry of Jesus goes forward in this world. So if we think about it, there's a lot to the Holy Spirit, isn't there? Way more than we often recognize. But there's one more truth I want to highlight before we wrap up this message. That as awesome as the Holy Spirit is, as great as the Holy Spirit is, it is possible for us to resist the Holy Spirit. For example, the Holy Spirit is present in our lives through prevenient grace, but we could ignore the nudges that come through prevenient grace. My parents could have ignored those nudges to go to church when I was seven years old. The Holy Spirit wants to bring us to Jesus, wants to convict us of our sin, but we could ignore all that too. The Holy Spirit wants to sanctify us, but we can forego that sanctification process and remain in our sin. We could choose not to be a part of the church, not to be a part of the collective body of Jesus, and to not embrace the spiritual gifts that God wants to give us. It is completely and totally possible for us to resist the Holy Spirit. We're not robots. We're not puppets. Scripture talks about this. In fact, there's an example here where Scripture talks about this in the book of Acts. But when we do, when we resist the Holy Spirit, we lead spirit-deficient lives and we don't become the fully alive people that God intends for us to be. About five years ago, 2017, in the fall of that year, I got sick. In fact, I got sicker than I think I've ever been in my entire life. I found out later on that I had a liver virus, and it was really holding me down. I could barely move. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I was on the couch for days. I had a fever that wouldn't go away. At the time, Amanda was pregnant with Hannah and Noah, and we didn't know if what I had was super contagious, and she was, she was kind of off in another part of the house. And then finally, um, she just said to me, you really, really need to go to the emergency room. I should have gone earlier in the week, but, but she convinced me to go, and I wasn't strong enough to drive. So I had a friend of mine who took me. I got to the emergency room, and the nurse took one look at me, and he said, you are extremely dehydrated. We're going to fix that really soon. So he hooked me up to an IV, and within the hour, just getting those fluids in my system made me feel human again. 
when we resist the Holy Spirit, we become like I was in the emergency room that day, spiritually dehydrated and not fully functioning. But when we allow the Holy Spirit, who was already there, who was already moving to become active and present and at work in our lives, we become the fully alive people that God wants us to be. Are you leading a spirit-deficient life? You don't have to be. Just open up your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to flood you. I promise you the Spirit will. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.